You're listening to the Grassroots Suicide Prevention Podcast, Voices of Hope. Hello and thank you for joining us. My name is Joanna Johnson. I'm a trainer with Grassroots Suicide Prevention. Today I'll be talking to Jackie Watkins, a senior primary mental health care worker with the school's mental health services, who's been involved with responding to suicides in schools and developing new tools for educators for the prevention of youth suicide. We'll be talking about the rise of suicide, the impact of training and new tools, and how important it is to give teachers and students confidence, space and resources they need to talk about suicide with young people. So Jackie, welcome. Hi Joanna, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you, Jackie. So can you tell us a little bit about your role and how it links directly to suicide prevention? Sure. Um, As a primary mental health worker within child and adolescent services, my role in Brighton and Hove is to support children and young people in schools and to work with parents and school staff with a whole school approach to mental health and well-being. And we do this in a number of ways, for example, individual therapeutic sessions for children and young people. We might offer parent consultations or we sometimes do group work that might be around anxiety, exam stress, that kind of thing. And key to this topic today, we deliver support and advice to the staff working with vulnerable young people. Well, it's a lot of good work going on there, Jackie. Thank you. Can I ask you, have you noticed any changes in the number of young people who present with self-harm or suicidal ideation, so where they have thoughts of suicide? Sadly, yes. I mean, as a service, we have definitely noticed the increase in hospital admissions and A&E visits as we've got really good links to the liaison services there who report on these young people. It's also an important part of our safeguarding measures that we're closely linked to senior mental health leads in schools, to local GPs and to CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, and to the hospital liaison team. So it's important to note that the demand on services is huge. And I mean, 75% of young people accessing services are having to wait. And with one in four young people needing that help, it must be really challenging. So what do you think has really impacted the mental health of young people? Um, I would say that young people are having more mental health issues, but also that we're more aware of it. And there's been much work done in schools in recent years to achieve this, such as anti-stigma campaigns, uh, some young people becoming mental health champions, more education around mental health in lessons, life skills, PSHE classes, and more training for school staff and especially pastoral staff who do an amazing job in supporting these young people. One aspect of the school's mental health service is that we can deliver early intervention support and that's helping children and young people find a language around talking about mental health and it's our hope that this is a strong prevention measure against future problems like isolation, suicide ideation, self-harm, etc. But saying that, I I think we need to be mindful here also that suicide is such a complex issue and not always a mental health issue. It can be a combination of so many things. Um, We're thinking about transitions, bullying, exam worries, bereavement, etc. 
Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, it's, it's so vitally important to recognise that it's not wise to take a reductionist view, like a one component factor, isn't it? It's that wider, complex picture that can increase the young person's vulnerability. And I know you were saying about the language of mental health. Um, there is a mental health literacy program that I know they're trying to weave throughout schooling. So that, again, will support the work that you're doing in terms of young people understanding the words to use. Yeah, indeed. So when we look at the mental health of young people, Jackie, can you tell me what does the research currently say about this? Yeah, I was really interested in looking into that. And uh, national statistics are showing that suicide is at its highest in 30 years, which is really troubling. One of the studies carried out in England by the Samaritans researched young people on the connection between loneliness and suicide and reported that around 200 young people die each year and many reported feeling lonely and finding it difficult to get the help and support they needed because of the stigma around loneliness. I believe that study was involving 16 to 24 year olds. And it's also noted in there that the disconnection from social networks, or feelings of social isolation, or feeling like a burden are often given as key factors that could increase someone's capacity to take their own life. I also looked at a study by Papyrus showing that in the UK, over 200 school children are lost to suicide every year. And those latest figures were from 2018. In addition, there's national data from Childline regarding boys showing that more than 120 boys ended their own life in 2020. It says that one boy for every five girls talks about mental health in Childline in counselling sessions. So we can see that boys are less likely to contact services when they have suicidal thoughts. And the Childline counsellors report that young people can feel isolated and are reluctant to reach out for help because of this stigma that we're talking about around sharing their feelings. The contributory factors might be that young people measure themselves against traditional markers of success. They report the negative role um, social media played in increasing feelings of loneliness by amplifying expectations and comparisons to others. Uh, but we also need to be clear that wider research shows that in some cases, social media can have a positive impact on a person's feelings of loneliness. I, I know that's a whole separate conversation. And there are some good blogs on the power of online support in the role of suicide prevention. So we want to be mindful of that. But overall, we, we know that for many children, young people, there might be adverse childhood experiences, difficult family relationships, bullying, transition and change, and the distinct lack of face-to-face -face communication or connection that can result in a level of isolation. And we're tackling this in schools and raising awareness as part of our work. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's very um, interesting points there, particularly um, when you look at the situation with COVID, which undoubtedly exacerbated that lack of connections. Facts and statistics like this are all too common and they don't reflect the devastation of every individual death of a young person due to suicide. While it seems easy to isolate patterns of feelings and behaviour in young people through these stats, 
it's also, of course, challenging to provide complete guidance for educators because there are so many varied and unpredictable things that can have a negative effect on young people's mental health. At Grassroots Suicide Prevention, we've spent years refining our training for educators, for schools, for pastoral care providers, for school counsellors, school nurses, in the hope that people can learn as much as possible about what to look for, how to react, and ultimately how to try and intervene with mental health care, counselling and other relevant services before a young person takes their own life. Let's jump back into the conversation with Jackie and find out how the reality of these higher youth suicide rates is affecting her work. So Jackie, how has this affected your role? Um, well, we've been called into schools to support staff who are aware of young people who are self-harming or using language around suicide ideation. And many school staff don't feel prepared for these conversations. And why should they be? They're being asked to do the work of mental health professionals. So just as grassroots suicide prevention deliver advice and training on how to start a conversation around suicide, we want to arm school staff and parents with the confidence to have these conversations with young people. We might deliver a training workshop in school or support a family around making a safety plan for when the young person is feeling suicidal or self-harming. We really have had to be more aware and act quicker in safeguarding. And sadly, in some cases, we have gone into schools to support staff and students following the unexpected death of a young person. Um, another example of how suicidal thoughts in children and young people has affected my role would be increasing our offer to pastoral and support staff in schools and giving them the opportunity to reflect or to have supervision around their own feelings in having to deal with young people who are displaying the warning signs of suicide or self-harm. That's some fantastic work you're doing there. And I know the impact on the school community can be huge. The psychology behind it is, says around 135 people can be impacted, but certainly within a school, I think that's much more. Yeah, indeed. Based on that, Jackie, what do you think schools need to help them meet these challenges? Well, I think that schools need our support more than ever before. And here we're a growing team with specialist provision in supporting more parents, children and young people and school staff. They need encouragement to attend the trainings, specifically by suicide prevention experts who understand the complexity of suicide and talking safely about it, such as grassroots suicide prevention. Yeah, we offer a range of training courses for teachers, school counsellors and educators. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the training you've done yourself and that your team has done and how that helps. So I did the grassroots suicide prevention training years ago, and I have been recommending that to everyone, no matter where you work or what you do or who you are. Taking this training gave me the confidence to ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? And um, following that, grassroots suicide prevention offered our team a training specifically to be delivered to parents, which has been invaluable in reaching parents who naturally find the topic unbearable. I mean, it's the last thing you want to think about as a parent, right? And yet we want to support parents to look out for signs and have these conversations. 
I think all of this training and added awareness has helped to signpost more people to services who can help prevent child and adolescent suicide. And training has also given schools the tools to manage better in dealing with a critical incident and to be as prepared as they can be in the event of an unexpected death. Yeah, that importance of opening that conversation and involving people and supporting each other as well. Absolutely. So you've talked about some of the training you've received. So could you tell me what value do you see in having all staff in schools trained in talking to young people around suicide? School staff have told us that the grassroots suicide prevention training has changed the way they respond to children and young people and given them the confidence to open up a conversation, which is great. They might feel they've got it wrong, but the young person might end up saying, hell no, I wasn't thinking about taking my life. And that's, of course, the best outcome you can have. Young people need to know who they can trust, but they won't always open up the conversation. The adults around them need to have the tools to be brave enough to do that for them. We propose the use of a mantra that every interaction is an intervention. It just means that simply saying hello in the corridor or welcoming a young person into your classroom can be an intervention in itself. It sends the message that you are a safe person and that you're open to listening when the young person is ready. Thank you, Jackie. Um, yeah, I've found that it isn't necessarily the pastoral teacher they will go to. There could be somebody else that they connect with. And as you say, it's so important that they go to somewhere that they trust and they can open up to rather than being allocated certain people that they have to talk to. That's such a valid point. So which you've talked about school staff receiving training. Do you think young people would benefit from it too? Yeah, I think that young people do have the capacity to support each other. And when they know they're not alone in feeling this way, it reduces that sense of isolation. Young people really do feel they're the only ones experience uh, this low point in their life. We have training groups of young people and that can reduce stigma around mental health issues. And in addition to my work as a primary mental health worker, I also do specific work with adolescents who present with depression. I have a lot of conversations about what can help reduce their symptoms. So as an interpersonal psychotherapist, I deliver an evidence-based intervention supporting the idea that a positive relationship can have a huge impact on our mood. So one of the key parts of this therapy is about connecting with family and friends and building a team of support around the young person, whether they want to or not. I mean, some take a while to get the idea of accepting help. And also a young person can learn that everyone has high and low points in life. When you're young, it's the worst thing in your world of experience to feel low and isolated. But of course, as adults, we learn to ride the wave of low mood as a natural part of life. And we have the benefit of hope, which they often don't have. We also have a fully formed prefrontal cortex that happens at the age of about 25. So the adolescent brain is to blame for many of these feelings. Delivering psychoeducation about this can reduce the guilt and the self-blame that young people suffer at this stage of life. Yeah, that's an important point about coping mechanisms and that prefrontal cortex, which is like the parent of their brain, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And it's so important. They do learn those those mechanisms to support themselves through all sorts of different experiences that they're having. Yeah. Can I ask then, if someone is concerned about a young person, 
and they know them and they want to talk to them. What key points would you like to share from your experience? The first thing I'd share is that you can't make it worse. The young person has perhaps already reached a low point, so don't be afraid to name it. Mentioning suicide isn't going to make someone take their life. Sometimes it's a relief to be able to say out loud that they've been having these thoughts and hearing themselves say the words can help them realize that suicide is not actually what they really want to happen. So letting them know there is help can reduce the feelings of isolation. Also knowing there are resources, it means that lots of people are talking about the topic and it's okay and sometimes normal to have these feelings. Where are the resources would you recommend? You can guide people to blogs, helplines, grassroots suicide prevention, papyrus. We've talked to a lot of young people about um, how they can access support by themselves if they really don't feel they want to reach out. And so the Stay Alive app is one that we would recommend to young people. Yeah, grassroots suicide prevention put the app together with that idea in mind of helping people support themselves as well and giving them access to a full range of resources that they need. It could be something very painful they're talking through for the first time, but you're opening the door for them to actually have that conversation. So that's wonderful work. Thinking about someone who is actually having thoughts of suicide, are there particular signs to look out for? Yeah, as we know more about the teenage social brain, we know that withdrawal from people close to you or emotional dysregulation, irritability, they're often experienced in adolescence. So the signs of changing mood and distress are not always clear and can be easily missed. However, we can look out for changes such as withdrawal from friendship groups, some social isolation that's not normal for the young person, self-harm or an increase in self-harm, maybe the use of language such as not wanting to be here, wish it would all go away, that kind of thing. So really any changes to how a child or young person usually presents are worth checking out. It doesn't mean there is necessarily anything wrong, but checking in with a young person regularly helps them know they can come to you if they need to when they're ready. Again, we're, we're noticing, we're being curious with the young person. We're seeing what the reaction is before we open up the conversation. Thank you, Jackie. There's some good indicators to look out for there. And what can help very often is how well you know the person, you will see that change in some of those behaviours being exhibited. What more do you feel we can all do to support young people to talk about these difficult thoughts and feelings? I think we can continue to have these open conversations with children, young people about their mental health. But as we said before, it's not just necessarily about mental health. It's reducing social anxiety, building self-esteem, increasing communication in families and modelling good relationships where children and young people feel they can communicate face-to-face with key people in their lives and at school. And schools already provide a safe space and good routines. And so we need to remember that each child or young person has at least one key adult in school they respond to. I think you mentioned that before. And that could be anyone who is checking in on them or who shows an interest. So that that could be us. That, that could be anyone. That's such an important point. I really appreciate it because I think 
that whole involving that whole community and then being aware as well, it means that they feel more comfortable to talk to anyone within the school that they know that they have a relationship with and there isn't a stigma around who they go to. Based on the emerging needs of schools in managing not only mental health, but the possibility of a suicide, Jackie was directly involved in supporting the public health team in writing the Unexpected Death Toolkit. This is a document that gives step-by-step practical guidance to school staff about what to do, what to say, and how to deal with everything from parent and student communications to press inquiries. Most crucially, it encourages schools to set up specific people and systems so that if there is a student suicide, panic of what to do goes away and staff can then focus on managing the devastating effect of such a tragic event, such as looking after the well-being of other students, parents, staff and the wider community, as well as managing the impact on their own well-being. Grassroots Suicide Prevention is currently delivering tailored suicide prevention training for educators, including how to effectively implement the toolkit in their school environments, potentially saving young lives. So far, over 50 schools in Sussex have been trained and demand is high in other areas. So next, I asked Jackie about her key takeaways from developing such a vital resource. So Jackie, what do you think are the key messages for professionals in the toolkit? So one aspect of the toolkit that we feel really strongly about is training staff and students in managing feelings of guilt following an unexpected death. This is something identified by anyone who might have come into contact with a young person. And we want to help normalize these feelings and give space to having conversations about feeling blame or guilt. It's obviously so complex. For the, for the toolkit, our team was asked by public health to consult with guidance on how to manage critical incidents in schools with practical help in the event of a child death. And key messages here are about building that resilience in how we manage grief, how to respond to the media, and thinking about other effects on a school community, such as the prevention of a ripple effect or further suicides within the community. Thank you, Jackie. That sounds like an amazing tool and something that is very much needed in the school community. And yeah, people do tend to forensically unpick, don't they, what happened, what they did and didn't do, which obviously they need to for safeguarding purposes, but it is such a difficult time for them. Yeah, absolutely. How would you like to see further resources and training developed? So in order to build the resilience that I keep mentioning um, for school staff and school leads, we want to encourage regular training about these topics. The offers from grassroots suicide prevention are amazing and something that should be regularly revisited to support staff in feeling able to have these conversations. If it's been a while since you had training, you can really second guess yourself or your skills and always remembering that you can't make it worse just by asking. I don't think we can expect schools to make the training mandatory for everyone. As I've mentioned before, we're asking a lot of school staff already. However, knowing that the toolkit exists and having an awareness of the simple interaction staff can offer would benefit everyone. 
it's important to listen to schools and what they say they need. We would encourage them to learn from each other. Um, some schools within our community have varying levels of experience and support in place. And as much as we talk about encouraging children and young people to talk and reduce stigma, we need to also do that across education settings. One of the other offers from members of my team, the school's mental health service, is a mental health first aid training being rolled out nationally and delivering simple but powerful strategies that will benefit anyone in opening up conversations and upskill professionals or any, anyone working with children and young people. So joint working with other services is also being developed. So there's a wraparound following up in a case of risk. One example of this is our connection with school nurses. Um, we have delivered training locally around assessing risk. And they're also being pulled into more mental health issues than physical ones. So that, that training has become really key. Yeah, I agree from um, experience in the education sector. School nurses are under amazing support and school counsellors as well. And if they have that training, that knowledge base, it's going to give them that confidence and enhance their skill set to support people. And obviously that collaborative approach again, where it's not just based on one person or one service, but you're working together to potentially save lives. So Jackie, to finish, I'd like to ask, what are your key takeaways to help people working in education save young lives? So we've seen remarkable resilience in school staff to support vulnerable children and young people. They've stepped up in, a, in very difficult times and acted incredibly well in the face of critical incidents. We want to encourage professionals to ensure they're accessing support to manage any disclosures that they're getting from young people. As clinicians in mental health services, we benefit from supervision to support us with difficult issues that arise in our work. And staff in Brighton and Hove can access reflective space through our service. And the important thing, wherever you work, is to have someone you can go to so you aren't holding everything yourself. Schools are being asked more and more to be the mental health experts, as I've mentioned, and we're asking a lot of them. If we can support them in this endeavor and make these conversations easy and a normal part of building relationships, we can make a difference in the lives of children and young people. Fantastic, Jackie. Thank you so much. Um, your expertise has been absolutely invaluable and particularly that you know collaborative approach that needs to support the education sector and what is a very challenging area for them. I think it's great. We talked about the fact you need to open up conversation, open up that dialogue around suicide because there is a stigma and that needs to be reduced so that everyone is talking about it in an open way so they can get the support they need. And prevention tools, the need for the tools to be developed um, with and for the education community with the help of experts such as your toolkit, but also other tools that may be useful. And, and as you've mentioned about talking to young people, talking to the educators, what do they need in terms of support and, and resources? And most important of all, there is hope. We can do something, we can reduce suicides. And there's been some fantastic advice here to help with that aim. So thank you very much again. Thank you. So 
Thank you, Jackie Watkins, a senior primary mental health care worker with the school's mental health service, who's given us some invaluable advice today in preventing suicide or responding to suicide in education settings. We're really grateful, Jackie, for everything you, all the advice you've given us today. So thank you again and hope to uh, speak to you again soon. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. If you or someone you know is in immediate risk of suicide, please contact the emergency services. You can find more resources, advice and support on our website, www.prevent-suicide.org.uk.